Well, good morning. Are your, uh, is all the graduating done? Is anybody yet to be graduated, at least who's supposed to graduate this spring? All the schools have had their graduations, I do believe. Yes or no? Yeah, nobody says yes or no. I'll assume that it is done. This year, um, this year was our family's very first graduation. Ben graduated from high school. Give Ben a hand. <laughs> and man, you know, with, with all those open houses, I got to tell you, I'm worn out. And I, I've had enough veggie dip to last me a lifetime. And you know, you go from house to house and you see the same people. You know, everywhere you go, and that's great, but you know, I only have so many things to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations once again to all you seniors and to their friends and families. It's indeed a time of life, a rite of passage to celebrate. We finish, we finish something this morning too. We finish our series on the essentials of the faith that we started way back in February. My, how time flies. Can you believe it's June? I, um, I hope you've enjoyed the series as much as I have preparing it. It's, um, it's been good, and it is good to look back again at the basics of our faith from time to time. And the special emphasis that I've been putting on our review of the, of the essentials is that they should even must be a basis for common ground among believers, among believers of every tribe or denomination, I guess we might say. We need to be very careful, my brothers and sisters, lest the devil get a toehold. We need to be very careful when debating theology with each other that we don't end up dividing over non-essentials. The devil delights in division, especially when the people of God divide. Throughout the history of the church, including in my own personal experience too, how about yours? Christians tend to divide over things that are simply not essential to the Christian faith. We get all hot and bothered sometimes over the tiniest detail. We forget God's command to love each other and Jesus' wish, his prayer, that we be made one in our unity and witness of the God who John says is love. And so it has been and continues to be my hope that the essentials we've discussed the past few months help serve to bring us together, to unite us, to give us common ground on which we can truly, truly call each other's brothers and sisters and mean it, even when we don't see everything the same way. The essentials we've covered so far go something like this. There is a God, a one God who created everything, he is Trinitarian in nature, meaning he is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God is great, and God is good. In fact, he is greatness and goodness. And he wants us to know him and to love him because he loves us, and he created us in his image. 
God reveals Himself to us in creation and in Scripture so that we may know Him and love Him. Scripture is simply God's revelation written down. It's inspired, infallible. And as the Word of God, it has the authority to guide and direct us. Sin is our tendency to not let God be God. And it is a powerful force, a powerful problem that defaces the image of God in us and threatens to keep us distant from God. And sin can only be overcome in Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He has two natures, divine and human, in one person. And we are saved from sin through his death and resurrection. Jesus paid for our sin, and so he is the only way to God. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. All those in Christ will be saved. All those not in Christ will be in hell. When Jesus ascended to heaven, God gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit in a whole new intimate way. He now lives in us, enabling us in supernatural ways even to live out our faith in witness to the world that our God is God and offers salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's roughly what we've covered so far. And it brings us to the last essential of the faith that we'll discuss, at least in this series. And this one's one of my favorites. I love talking about this one because I love her. And that essential is the church. And I'll begin stating the essential this way, and then we'll flesh it out. The church has an important role to play until Jesus comes again. The best biblical picture or definition for church, in my opinion, is the people of God. You've heard me use that phrase a lot throughout this series. There are other prominent biblical pictures for the church in Scripture, but they all really describe the people of God. For example, the church is often called the bride of Christ in the Bible, just as Israel is called God's bride. I've used that one with you too. And probably the next most frequent picture of the church in the Bible is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about Him in the life of the church. The people of God, the bride of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the church. There are three questions I'd like um, to frame the message around this morning regarding the church. You'll see them listed on the screen. What are the functions of the church? What is at the heart of the ministry of the church? And finally, what's the character of the church? First, the functions of the church can be remembered by the acronym WIFE, or WIFE. I tried to come up with an acronym using the word bride, but I failed. <laughs> so, wife is as close as I could get. So when you think church, you might think wife in this way. The first function of the church is worship. There's the W. 
In short, worship is the praise and exaltation of God. Worship is where the people of God recognize and declare the greatness of God. And in worship, the focus is on God, on who and what He is and what He does. Worship does not focus on the church itself. It doesn't focus on our feelings, for example, although feelings are certainly a part of worship. But in worship, the people of God focus on God, in community often, but on God. And while worship benefits the worshipers, its emphasis should always be God, praising and exalting God. The church worships God. The second function of the church is instruction. There's the I. I really preferred to use the word edification here rather than instruction, but I needed a word that starts with I because who wants an acronym that says WEEF? <laughs> and, and I suppose I could have put edification as a fifth one on the end, but then we've got wifey. That don't work either. Edification really happens in all four of the functions I'm covering today, so it's still there, it's just not spelled out. Thus, instruction. Instruction is really part of the broader task of discipling. One of Jesus' commands in the Great Commission is to teach believers to obey everything I have commanded you, Jesus says to his disciples. To this end, one of God's gifts to the churches is pastors and teachers to help prepare and equip the people of God for service. Frankly, that phrase is always uppermost in my mind when I prepare a sermon. How can I help prepare and equip us for service? And it doesn't have to be pastors or even official teachers in a church that give instruction. We instruct one another as brothers and sisters. A great example of this in the Bible is in Acts. When Apollos is teaching, probably from Africa, the guy shows up. And then Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos, and then Apollos became even a better teacher after that. We can all learn from each other. This is where Sunday school comes into play as well, under this instruction. I would love to see more of us involved in our Sunday school classes. It's part of what the church does, and a classroom setting is just such a helpful way to prepare for service in the kingdom. We've got various Sunday school classes. We just updated it hot off the press. Ryan mentioned it in our purple sheet. I'll hold it up high. You see it in your bulletins. We call it the purple sheet with some reverence because it's like it gives us an idea what in the world is going on around here. But if you look on the purple sheet, there are various Sunday school classes. This morning, for the summer at least, Dave Beatty started a new class at 9 o'clock. He's going to be talking about the Gospel of John. It meets in this very room. You can still join beginning next week, continues next week, and rolls through the summer. I think I take a turn or two down the road. But all of our Sunday schools, a great way to be part of the instruction function of the church. If you haven't tried Sunday school in a while, please consider giving it a try and joining us. The third function of the church is fellowship. 
This is one that you all are really, really good at. Every Sunday morning, I did it again. I smile because if no one was around to stop you, you would do stand and greet all morning long. (laughs) And that's awesome. I love that about you. And that's an important function in the life of the church. Easily, the most frequent comment that I get back and we in leadership get back on you on our new visitor forums as they say, everyone is just so friendly. It's not always the case. Good job. Keep it up. And there's a depth of fellowship that God craves among his children, a depth that may go and does go well beyond stand and greet. The New Testament speaks of koinonia, defining the people of God. That's a Greek word that literally means having or holding all things in common. In Acts 5, the early church even held all material possessions in common. I'm not sure we're quite so good at that one. We Americans tend to label that communism or socialism. And we prefer our own stuff you know, to use whenever I want to. But at the very least, or perhaps the very most, Paul speaks of sharing one another's experiences. If one part of the church body suffers, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Fascinating thing, fellowship, sharing experiences with one another. It reduces hurt, and it increases joy simply by sharing. Sharing hurt reduces hurt, and sharing joy increases joy. That is so cool. What an amazing God we serve. And God wants us to encourage and sympathize with each other. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says in Galatians. Some of my students come to me and say, Mr. Lanning, and they're troubled. I really don't have a hard life at all. Everything is going great. The Bible says that those who stand for Jesus will be persecuted and Well, I'm doing my best to stand for Jesus, but everything is great. Am I doing something wrong? Bless their hearts. It's like they feel guilty that nothing bad ever happens to them. And my response often includes this advice. You know, go find someone who is hurting and enter into their hurt with them. Make their hurt yours by being there for them in empathy and in help. You see, we're pushed by our culture to be so individually minded that we don't often feel or equate the pain of others as if it's our own. But as a church, a people of God, someone else's pain is our pain too. 
No one in Christ should be able to say that they have never experienced pain because of all the pain in the world among hurting people. Their pain is our pain too. And we need to, I need to, mature, really, into that community view of pain. And yes, of joy too. This is the fellowship that the Bible is looking for, that God is looking for in His church, in His people. Incidentally, and then we need to move on, fellowship includes those outside the church too. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be light. We're supposed to, like Jesus, associate with sinners, to know and be around those who don't know the Lord. We're supposed to want to invite and include those who haven't found God yet to find Him, maybe through hanging out with us. You know, before Easter, we started the thing with the little invitation cards. We still have one in the lobby. Many of you have taken them. It got me a supersized one. Yours is more the size of a business card. The older I get, the bigger I need to read it. But listen, there's a few more in the lobby. We'll have more next week. You know, it's such a simple thing. Many of you have taken advantage of it. One side is a message. West Bowles, love God, love others. And June, on the back side is everything we're doing, including that hoedown. Wouldn't it be cool if half the people at that hoedown didn't go to West Bowles Community Church? Even cooler if they didn't go to any church. Now, I teach Bible, not math, but I think the way we would get to half is if each person asked someone. Right? right? Does that work, you math teachers? Would you think about on a Sunday night, we're going to have so much fun out there. Those are our third annual. If you've been there for the first two, you know it's a blast. You know, kids of all ages, it's one of these things that unites very young and very old. Everybody will get out there and do a square dance. You know, even George will get out there and square dance. Especially George will get out there and square dance. Take a card, would you? There's a few left at the Welcome Center. I'll have more next week. You know, people love to get a little thing. You know, they get something, they go, oh, yeah, look at that. And, you know, I'd say, hey, you know what? We've got this square dance coming on June 26th, this hoedown, we call it. There's all sorts of fun. Bring the kids. There's stuff for them to do. Here's a little reminder if you want it. They go, oh, you gave me something. And it's got colors on it. You know, God can work through the simplest thing. It goes back to the statistic that always just befuddles me. 2%. Two out of every hundred Christian churchgoers, 2% in one year's time, ask an unchurched person to join them in the people of God. 2%. I wonder if Jesus had that statistic in mind, at least in part, when he said, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Fellowship is a function of the church. Finally, the fourth function of the church is evangelism. There's the E, wounding out, rounding out wife. The one topic emphasized in both accounts of Jesus' last words to his disciples is evangelism, spreading the good news in a way that invites people to join in it. 
invites people to make the good news of Jesus Christ their good news to share too. Go and make disciples, Jesus urges. You will be my witnesses, Jesus declares. This was the final point Jesus made to his disciples. It appears that he regarded evangelism as the very reason for their being left behind, so to speak. And evangelism is not a suggestion, it's a command. Go! Do it! And then in love and reassurance, Around the command, Jesus reminds them in us, the Holy Spirit goes with you and in you, empowering you. You don't go alone. And Jesus promises that he too will be with us to the end of the age. If the church is to be faithful to its Lord, it must be engaged in bringing the gospel to all people, all people, even people we might not like very much, And remember, we evangelize in many ways. We can do it from text to taco, I like to say. We share the gospel by sharing God's word, and we share it by being God's love to people, including if they're hungry, by giving them something to eat. All sorts of ways to share the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. There's how the church is a wife. The people of God worship, instruct, fellowship, and evangelize or spread the good news. And speaking of good news, the gospel, that's the answer to our second question this morning. What's at the heart of the ministry of the Christian church? Well, it's the gospel. That's Greek for good news. And at the heart of everything the church does, of all the people of God are, is the good news of Jesus Christ, who He is and what God has done through Him. That's the gospel. In a nutshell, hear the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for our sins so all who believe in Him can be with God forever and ever. That's a lot of evers. And He will one day come again. And then the party really begins. And that's the good news. To Paul, the apostle, the gospel is all important. He declares to the church in Rome that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. He reminds the Corinthians, by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Paul explains to the Ephesians, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. For Paul, the gospel is the means by which life is obtained, true life. He writes to to Timothy, the one he calls his own son. He writes to Tim, it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel for Paul and for us brings hope and peace to those who believe. And so Paul speaks of the gospel of peace in Ephesians and the hope held out in the gospel in Colossians. Oh, the church has good news to offer to the world, news which indeed brings hope. And you know, that's where the Christian church can can be very, very unique because there's not a lot of hope in the world. 
or there's hope based on things that relentlessly fail. Most studies of humanity note that hope probably reached new lows in this past 20th century and the rise of existential thinking. There's little encouraging news on the news or in the newspapers or online, isn't there? An author by the name of Saul Bellow captured well, I think, the spirit of the entire last century, at least among those who don't believe or know God. In the same spirit I see leaking into the current century, most troubling to me, especially among our kids. Saul Bellow describes it this way. But what is the philosophy of this generation? Not God is dead. That period was passed long ago. Perhaps it should be stated, death is God. This generation thinks, and this is its thought of thoughts, that nothing faithful Nothing vulnerable, nothing fragile can be durable or have any true power. Death waits for those things as a cement floor waits for the dropping of a light bulb. Oh, good heavens. By contrast, the church says with Peter, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is hope. And it comes to fulfillment when we believe and obey the gospel. In the face of epidemic teen suicide and violence, in the face of war after war after war, in the face of that so-called cement floor of death, oh, we have a message of hope. And it's the gospel. At the heart of the ministry of the church is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, a gospel of peace and joy and hope and love. Last, what's the character of the church? The short answer is the character of the church should witness the character of Jesus. And so there are several things I could mention here, but I want to highlight two in particular that are crucial to the church, especially today in my opinion. First is a willingness to serve. Jesus said His purpose, His purpose in coming was not to be served, but to serve. In becoming human, He took on the form of a servant. The church must display a similar willingness to serve. It's here. We're here to serve God in the world, not to be exalted. We need to serve. Second, the church needs to be versatile and flexible in adjusting its methods and procedures to the changing situations of the world in which it finds itself. It must find new ways to reach the needy, the poor, the lost, those who don't yet know God, however it can. It must not at all costs cling to all its old ways. We need to adapt without altering our basic direction or the church's essentials of the faith, but in all else, 
We need to find every possible way to reach people wherever they are. There needs to be an urgency there because that's really what all of this is all about this morning. It's really all about the lost. It's all about those who don't yet know the Lord. Even in worship where the focus is on God, how on earth is that about the lost? Why do you suppose God enjoys or commands or asks that he be praised and exalted and lifted up? Is he just some sort of proud, arrogant glory hog? No. At the heart of why he desires the praise and worship of his people as he knows, listen, hold me up so people can see me. So others will notice me and notice the love I have for them too as we point to him. It's all about the lost, ultimately. And why do we give instruction? Isn't it ultimately so we're better able to serve and others will notice God too through our service? Or that they will hear instruction directly about God too and come to know him? It's all about the lost. And why fellowship? Isn't it again about others? And why spread the good news? Again, it's about the lost. God's great heart for those who don't yet know him as their God. It's why, for heaven's sakes, we haven't been raptured away. To reach others. It's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. You say, where do you get that? Peter gives us this. He tells us why Jesus hasn't returned yet. He says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, to know him. It's about the lost, those who don't yet know God. In God's best way, his plan to reach the lost, it's called the church. You, me, us, the people of God. And when we worship, instruct, fellowship, and evangelize, keeping the good news, the gospel, at the heart of all we do, and when we do it with the attitude of a servant's heart and an eagerness to do everything we can to adapt to find people wherever they are, changing our methods to changing times, you know what happens? We reach the lost. Or better stated, God reaches them through us being the people of God. When the church is the church, those who don't know God come to know him. He promises. So, my brothers and sisters, let's be the church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I don't know that any of us would have drawn up your plan this way in using imperfect people as your primary witness to a world of who you are. But help us, Father, to appreciate the beauty that we sung about early, earlier of that plan, that you, the almighty, ultimate God of the universe, who wish to partner so intimately with us and in us, that together with you, 
We can go and expand your family so others may know you too and know that you love them. Help us, Father, to wholeheartedly, with a servant's heart, just as your son did, partner with you. Partner with you in love for those especially who don't know you yet so that maybe through something we say, through something we do, even through a square dance, how silly is that? That they would come to know you and acknowledge you as their loving God and Savior too. Father, we love you. And we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you rise, please, for God's benediction, his good words. I'd ask that you'd face uh, me in the center of community so you can face each other. One of the final words that Jesus gave to his disciples we know is the Great Commission. There are elements of everything we've talked about this morning, a shadow at least, in his charge to his people. This is what he said to them and what he says to us. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And it's not in the text, but I imagine those disciples' eyes burning in eagerness and in love for the nations they were supposed to go reach. Let's go. May it be said of us too, in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, West Bowles. See you next week. God bless you all.